When I hear the word grace, I think of someone bringing beauty out of my biggest mistakes, being my real self, and being loved without conditions. I think about a love that's stronger, rock solid, bigger than anything I can ever imagine. When I'm really aware of God's grace, when I experience it, it's like a weight is gone. <sighs> a breath of fresh air. Freedom. It gives me hope. And when we share it with our families, our neighbors, our friends, with our church family, total strangers, we experience joy, growth, thankfulness, peace, healing. We experience more grace. Well, hey, Grace Chapel, great to be with you all as we get our new year started together. As I shared with folks at our vision gatherings yesterday, this is my 20th Vision Sunday at Grace Chapel, and I'm really excited about that. It's been great. As they say, as they say, time flies when you're having fun, and uh, we've been having a lot of fun for 20 years. But I don't know if you all, so that, means, that means that we've been together now in New England for 20 years. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but Bill Belichick and Tom Brady have been together in New England <laughs> for 20 years. Now, they've had a pretty good run, and so have we. But they're not done yet, and neither are we, all right? We got some good work to do. So I'm as excited as ever about the year and years to come, and I'll let you decide if I'm Belichick and you're Brady or vice versa, okay? So it'll probably come as no surprise to you that as a preacher, I believe in the power of words. Words have power to change things and to shape things. Hearing the words, I love you, can change your life. Hearing the words, you're a loser, can wreck your life. Words have power to shape and change things. Think about some of the most famous and formative words in our nation's history. The opening lines of the Declaration of Independence, which declare our right, every human being's right, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Think about how that phrase, the pursuit of happiness, has shaped our nation's story and psyche. But did you know that those words could just as easily have been the pursuit of virtue? The framers of the Declaration, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, uh, John Adams, Ben Franklin, like I knew him, Benjamin Franklin, uh, all those guys, <laughs> they were writing extensively in those days about the importance and the value and the desirability of virtue. In fact, they used the words virtue and happiness almost interchangeably in their writings at the time. Think about how different our nation's story might be if we'd been founded on the pursuit of virtue rather than the pursuit of happiness. Words have power. So beginning today and in the weeks to come, I would like to introduce you or reintroduce you to what I have come to believe is the most beautiful and powerful word in human history. It's a word that Philip Yancey calls the church's last best word. C.S. Lewis says this one word distinguishes Christianity from every other religion on earth. Max Locato says this word is the only answer to the mess of life. And that word is grace. Grace. Now, it's actually been a very formative word in my life. I first invited Jesus into my life as a five-year-old at Grace Baptist Church, Highland Falls, New York. 
I was raised in the faith and called to ministry at Grace Conservative Baptist Church. I've never quite been sure if the words Grace and Conservative belong together exactly, but <laughs> it, it, it kind of worked in that church. Now, the church I served for 16 years in New York didn't have Grace in its name, but if I had stayed, we were talking about changing the name to Grace Church of Manhasset. And here I am 20 years now at a place called Grace Chapel. But in all of those years, I have never preached a series on grace. Well, that's about to change big time. <laughs> big time. We've come to believe that this word grace is so important to our church right now, to our mission, to the world, that we're going to spend an entire year leaning into this particular word. An entire year exploring this thing called grace. Not just exploring it, but experiencing it. And not just experiencing it, but extending it to the world around us. So, in case you hadn't figured it out yet, our theme for this year is experiencing grace. It's not just our theme for this year. It is actually the centerpiece of the new Grace Chapel brand that we are launching this year. Now, most of us, we hear the word brand, we think about a logo or a, a mark. We think about the Nike swoosh or the golden arches of McDonald's. And just seeing that image associates all kinds of things for us. But a logo is just a visual representation of a brand. A brand is much bigger than that. A brand is everything that's true about a particular group or organization. And a brand is all about people and a promise. Who are the people you're trying to reach or serve? And what promise are you making to those people? Well, in our case, we're trying to reach the people of greater Boston. People whose lives are often stressful and demanding and harried and sometimes absolutely overwhelming. And we're making a promise to these people that you will experience grace here. You'll find rest here. You'll find welcome here. You'll find help here. You'll find encouragement and hope here. We're trying to reach and serve people who often find themselves asking some of the big questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? What's life all about? Where do I fit in? We're making those people a promise. You will experience grace here. You'll find belonging here, purpose here, meaning here, life to the full. So that's our brand. You will experience grace here. And so we've designed a, a, a mark, a logo, to represent that brand. You can see it's got a G right at the center of it. Grace, that's what we're all about. Not Grace Chapel, but God's grace in all of its forms. Grace is our message and our mission. But you'll also see that it kind of points somewhere. It, it points to a location, to, to a starting point. Grace is where you begin your journey. Now, that, that starting point might be a Grace Chapel campus, but it might be a home group somewhere. It might be a service project in the community. It might be a, a, a place on, uh, on, the, on the website, a visit to the website. It, it might be a Grace Chapel person living out their mission at school or work or in the neighborhood. Grace is a starting point for your journey. But grace is also a destination. It's where we're headed. It's, it's who and what we want to become. And so that's what this year and these years are all about, experiencing grace. But if you're going to experience grace, you first have to understand grace. And so I've spent a little bit of time this fall 
exploring and understanding this thing called grace, both practically and theologically. So we're going to spend some time this fall in the writings of a man named Paul, who knew a thing or two about grace and who had experienced it in the most beautiful and dramatic way possible. So we're going to start today in the, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. And we'll just kind of walk through this passage a little bit. We'll try to answer a few questions. What exactly is grace? Why is it so powerful? And how can we begin to experience it? Okay, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, now, just side moment here, just thinking ahead to next week for a minute. We want to kind of mix things up a little bit next week. And so next week, we're going to move the, the, the message part of the service up front towards the center so we have some time to worship in response afterwards. So if you're in the bad habit of kind of drifting in, <laughs> by about 10 minutes in, we're going to be preaching next week. So just be here and uh, be in the room, okay? All right, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, just a reminder, this book called Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul from prison to a network of churches in a region of the Roman Empire called Ephesus. Now, we'll talk more about that next week. Right now, we're going to jump into the middle of the letter where Paul gives some instructions to Christ followers like you and me. And what we have here may be the quintessential passage on grace in all the Bible. Unfortunately, it begins with bad news. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were deserving of wrath. A friend of mine went to the doctor recently with a nagging leg injury. And after a little while of examination and twisting and turning, uh, the doc said, uh, well, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. What do you want to hear first? Now, don't you hate that question? <laughs> how do you answer that question? How bad is the bad news? And how good is the good news? And, and can't we just skip the bad news and go right to the good news? The thing you have to understand about grace is that it really is a good news, bad news kind of a thing, but it, it begins with bad news. And as we've just read, the news is pretty bad. As for you, you were dead. It doesn't get much worse than that. How am I doing, Doc? Well, you're almost dead. Right? <laughs> now, obviously, he's not talking about being dead physically here. These, these readers and we are very much alive as they read and process these words, but spiritually speaking, they were dead. On, on the inside, they were, they were as good as dead. They were dying, their inner selves, their true selves, their inner being, they were dying on the inside for one simple reason. They had cut themselves off from God, the source of life. And next couple of words, Paul tells them and us how we do that, how we cut ourselves off from God. As for you, he says, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, Paul's using two words here that are similar but a little bit different in their emphasis. That word transgression or trespass, it describes stepping over a boundary. So it's an active kind of a word. The other word, sin, is kind of falling short or missing the mark. So it's a little bit more of a passive word. We sometimes talk about sins of commission and sins of omission. Well, Paul kind of covers the landscape here and says we're, we're guilty of both. So to put it bluntly, we are both rebels and failures. Spiritually speaking, 
Now, as much as we might not like to hear that and might want to push back a little bit, we bristle at those words. I think most of us would admit the shoes fit. The shoes fit, rebels and failures. We pretty consistently do things that we don't really want to do, that we wish we didn't do and hadn't done. And we pretty regularly fail to do things that, that we could do and that we wished we would do. Every time we do one of those things or fail to do one of those things, we put a little bit more distance between ourselves and God. We cut ourselves off just a little bit more from the source of life and move farther and farther from him. And as bad as that news is, it actually gets worse. Paul goes on to remind them and us that we have followed the ways of the world, the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. We're not only as good as dead on the inside, we're actually slaves to the very things that are killing us. We can't seem to help following the ways of the world. And so we end up chasing fame or money or success or comfort to the neglect of God and others and even our own well-being sometimes. We, we can't keep from being seduced by our enemy, the evil one, who, who deceives us into thinking that we don't need God or that God can't be trusted. We can't seem to stop ourselves from, from giving in and oversatisfying our, our desires. We eat too much, we drink too much, we sleep too much. We, we demean ourselves sexually, we hurt each other relationally. Now, we don't want to do these things. Nobody wants to be addicted to, to food or drink or sex or drugs. Nobody wants to, we don't want to lose our temper at the people that we love. We don't want to be greedy and gossipy and lazy and haughty and proud and prejudiced. But it's, it's like we can't help ourselves. Like we're slaves to the very things that are ruining us. And because of that, because we're dying on the inside and because we can't seem to stop ourselves, the bottom line, the really bad news is that we're doomed. We're doomed to keep separating ourselves from God further and further and further until we're finally separated from him and all of his goodness forever. Paul concludes by saying, all of us also lived among them at one time. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, the wrath he's talking about there is God's wrath. We're not really comfortable talking about God's wrath. We'd much rather talk about God's love. But the truth is, love and wrath really aren't incompatible. Don't you ever find yourself getting angry when someone you love does something foolish or hurtful to themselves or others? God loves us. He wants the best for us and for this world. And so naturally, he gets angry at the things that are ruining us and ruining our world. Many of us here at Grace use a little devotional guide called Encounter with God. And if you've been reading that along with me, we've been reading through the book of, of Amos, the Old Testament prophet. And it's been pretty rough going. Chapter by chapter, the prophet expresses God's anger and judgment at, at the evil of the nations and even Israel. And again, I found myself uncomfortable reading it all this week. But as I looked a little deeper, what was God angry about? Well, he was angry about child sacrifice. He was angry about the sexual exploitation of women in, in the name of religion. 
He was angry about violence and injustice and greed and oppression of the poor. Don't you get mad at those things? I mean, don't we get angry when we hear about another mass shooting? Don't we get upset when we read about corporate executives flooding the market with painkillers that they know are addictive? Don't we get angry about children who are abused and teenagers who are bullied and, and women who are trafficked and people who are targeted or discriminated against, unjustly treated simply because of the color of their skin or their social status? We get angry about those things. I heard a poll released just the other day on the radio, survey of Americans, asking them, what's the primary purpose of prison? Is it punishment or rehabilitation? You know what the answer was, overwhelmingly, for Americans? Punishment. Seventy-some percent said the purpose of prison is punishment. We get angry at things that are wrong and hurtful to people and society. And so why are we surprised when God does as well? Don't we want a God? Who will be angry about those things? Don't we want a God who says, you know, there's going to be none of that in my eternal kingdom. I don't want to live in a kingdom with all those things. But as long as we're enslaved by these things, as long as we're dying on the inside, we're doomed to be separated from God to a certain degree in this life and forever in the life to come. And just in case we think we're not that bad, Paul has a little phrase here, all of us. You know what that phrase means in the original language? All of us. <laughs> every single one of us. Every man and woman, every boy and girl, every Jew and Gentile, every slave and master, every religious person, every irreligious person, even five-year-old Sunday school boys who raise their hand in church. Every one of us. Now, is this the whole truth about humanity? No. Of course not. We are still men and women created in the image of a beautiful, wonderful God. We are still free to enjoy this beautiful world that he's given us and to, and to make the most of the lives he gives to us here. We are still capable of doing remarkably good and beautiful and true things in this world. All of this is God's common grace to us. This isn't the whole truth, but it, it is a universal truth and it's an inescapable truth. So that's the bad news. As you can see, it's pretty bad news. Anybody ready for some good news? <laughs> I am. Fortunately, Paul's not done yet. He's got some good news for us, and the good news is really, really good. So let me read it to you. Just let it kind of wash over you, okay? Beginning at verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. But God... That's how this paragraph begins in the original language. After all that badness, two little words change everything but God. We were dying on the inside, but God made us alive in Christ. We were in bondage to the things that were ruining us, but God set us free for new and better things. We were doomed to be farther and farther from God, 
But God came near, came to visit us, came to save us and bring us close. He saved us. Now talk about a powerful word, saved. It's one of Paul's favorite words. He uses it over 50 times in these letters. To save someone is to rescue them from a certain or inevitable fate. And that's what God has done for us. But why? Why did God do all these things? Is it because, because we deserved it? Is it because we're so lovable? And we've already seen that we really weren't that lovable after all and we weren't so deserving after all. He did it because of grace. Because of that beautiful, powerful, transformative word. He says it twice just so we don't miss it. It is by grace you have been saved. So, so what exactly is this thing called grace? Well, it's the sum total of everything Paul's talking about here. Just, just listen again. There's kind of this cascade of riches. It begins with undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. It wasn't something in us that prompted God to show us favor. It was something in God that prompted him to show us that. He desired to do something good for us. Even when we didn't deserve it, even when we weren't asking for it. Grace isn't getting what you deserve. Grace isn't not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting better than you deserve, way better than you could deserve. Undeserved favor. Grace is unconditional love. Paul writes, but because of his great love for us, we've already seen how unlovely and unlovable we can be at times, but God loves us anyway. He always has, and, and, and he always will. His love is not conditioned on anything, even when we're ignoring him, even when we're rebelling against him. As the saying goes, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more than he already does. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less than he already does. Unconditional love. Grace is unexpected kindness. Paul talks about how God has expressed his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. After thousands of years of failure and rebellion all through those Old Testament years, God doesn't give up on his people. Instead, when they least expect it, after 400 years of silence, God sends his son Jesus into the world to be with them, to be with us, to show us the way and to save us. It's unexpected kindness. Grace is unrestrained mercy. God who is rich in mercy. God is not stingy with mercy. We can be, right? Someone hurts us. They come to us and they say, you know, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Yeah, I yeah, you know. It, sometimes we can be stingy with her. God is not like that. He loves to show mercy. He's got an unlimited supply of it. In fact, it inspired Shakespeare, that great poet. The quality of mercy is not strained. It falleth like the rain from heaven. It is an attribute of God himself. Unrestrained mercy. And finally, grace is unbelievable goodness. We haven't read the final verse yet, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We've not only been rescued from the things that were killing us, we've not only been set free and, and, and rescued from a certain fate, 
We have been turned into masterpieces of God's handiwork and given remarkably important, beautiful work to do in this world in partnership with God. I mean, this is unbelievable goodness. And so we've gone from a mess to a masterpiece, from the trash bin to the trophy shelf, from a prison cell to the king's court. And why? Why all this goodness? Because of God's grace. He just decided to do it for us. We experience grace when we're saved by grace. When we allow God to do this healing, rescuing, transforming work in our lives. Now, I've thrown a lot of words at you today. I realize that. A lot of churchy words, a lot of abstract words. But what does grace actually look like in everyday life? I mean, how does it feel to experience grace? Well, I, I tried to think about it in some non-churchy ways. So let me try some of this. Grace is what happened to Private James Francis Ryan, the youngest of four brothers sent off to war and the only one left still alive. He's rescued from the battlefield and certain death probably by a squad of soldiers who are willing to lay down their lives so that he could return to his mother and live a full and good life. Undeserved favor. Grace is what happened to Lady Edith Crawley, misfit daughter of Downton Abbey, the least lovely of the three sisters. Her first fiancé disappears mysteriously. Her second fiancé leaves her jilted at the altar. The third one, the third beau, also abandons her when he learns that she has a child out of wedlock. And so just when it seems that every hope of happiness is gone for Lady Edith, that third beau returns, ready now to make her his wife, to take her child as her own, and together they enjoy a life of happiness. Unbelievable goodness. Grace is what happened to Primrose Everdeen when her older sister Katniss takes her place as tribute in the Hunger Games, saving her from a certain death. Katniss not only saves her sister, but actually wins the game, bringing great reward to her district and striking a blow for freedom from their oppressors. Unconditional, sacrificial love. Grace is what happened to Jean Valjean, a petty thief imprisoned for nearly 20 years for a petty crime, but hardened and bittered by that experience. He steals silverware from a bishop who was nothing but good to him. He's caught and certain to be sent back to prison for the rest of his life, only to find the bishop ready to forgive him. Not only to forgive him, but to claim him as his friend and to give him a bag of silver with which he can start a new and good life. Unexpected kindness, unrestrained mercy. This and more is grace. But that's Hollywood. I mean, what does grace look like in real life for real people? Well, maybe it looks like a, a husband who who's unfaithful to his wife, who by his own admission deserves to lose everything that matters to him, only to find forgiveness from his wife, the care and counsel of Christian friends, and eventually to find restoration 
in his relationship with his wife and children and church. Maybe it looks like a child whose parents can't care for her anymore. And so she is shuffled from one unsteady home to another until finally a Christ-following family finds her, chooses her, and makes her their own. Maybe it's a teenager who nervously shares with a church youth leader that they're gay. And here's the words in response, you are loved and accepted here, no matter what. Maybe it's a 40-something-year-old father suffering from kidney failure, dialysis, not working anymore, preparing himself to say goodbye to his two young children until a fellow church member steps up and donates a kidney, saves his life. Maybe it's a convicted sex offender who lost his freedom, his job, his family, his reputation, but upon release finds his way to a church where to a surprise he finds acceptance and healing and support and recovery and eventually a second chance at marriage and then restoration to his children and then the vacating of his record. Sound too good to be true? Those stories are not only true, they are Grace Chapel stories. Every one of those people experienced grace here. And not just those people, almost every one of those stories, except maybe the kidney story, almost every one of those stories could be told two or three or four or five times, just change the names and a few of the details. It happens over and over again. Men, women, children, students, who to their great surprise, find unbelievable goodness and unconditional love and unrestrained mercy and the grace of God. That's what it means to experience grace. Now, your story may not be as dramatic as that. Maybe it is. But grace means that whatever your story has been, your tomorrow, your future, and your rest of your story can be better than you ever possibly imagined. Not because of anything you've done or do, but because of everything Christ has done and will do if you let him, if you invite him, if you trust him by faith to come and do his saving, healing, restoring work in your life as well. So that's what it means to experience grace. It really is a bad news, good news kind of a thing. The bad news is really bad. The good news is really, really good. As Pastor Tim Keller puts it, we are more sinful and flawed than we ever cared to admit and more loved and accepted than we ever dared to imagine. So we have a lot to explore in the months to come as we go after this thing called grace. I spent most of my summer reading and researching and reflecting on this thing, and, and I've become convinced, along with Philip Yancey, that it is the church's last best word. It's what the world needs. Where else in this world do you find grace? And it's what the church has in buckets. We've cornered the market on grace. Not because we've earned it or deserve it, because God's chosen to give it to us and to give us so much that it overflows and we share it with the world around us. So I can't think of anything more worthy 
of our prayer and our study and our learning and our serving and our growing than, than to pursue this discovery and delivery of this great promise, you will experience grace here. But as we finish today, I need to ask you, have you experienced grace, this kind of grace, this saving, healing, restoring, transformative grace? Now, now many of us here have, I know, not just once, but many times have experienced God's grace. Well, let's, let's celebrate that and thank him for it again. The thing about grace is there's always more. There's always more to experience. There's always more to share. So let's lean into it this year and see what God has for us. Some of you here today may feel like you need grace. Maybe you're in trouble. Maybe you're hurting. Maybe you've really messed up. And you're wondering if there can possibly be grace for you. The thing about grace is there's always enough. There's always enough grace for whatever we need. All you have to do is receive it. Remember, you can't earn it, you can't buy it. All you can do is receive it by faith as you ask Christ to forgive you for those sins and failures, to give you a fresh start and lead you into new and better ways. Maybe you aren't quite convinced yet that grace is a real thing or that grace is what you need or that grace can be found in a church. That's okay. Did I tell you that grace is unbelievably patient? Take your time. Let it sink in. Explore this with us in these next few weeks because you never know. You might just experience grace here. In fact, we'll pray that you do. Let's pray now. Lord, we've got a lot to think about here this morning. Thank you for these rich and wonderful words, challenging ones, but hopeful ones. Lord, we'd like to give ourselves just a few quiet minutes so that individually we can just think about what we've heard today. And thank you for the grace we've received. Ask you for the grace we need. Or consider how we might share grace with the world around us. Speak to us in this next moment. Thank you, Lord, for this and your amazing grace. We pray that this year we might more fully experience it and extend it to the world around us. Meet us as we gather from week to week, as we gather in groups, as we go out to live and share this grace with the world. That we might do it in ways that bring you glory, that bring us joy, and that bless the world. In Jesus' name. Amen.